We are continuing our series on Upward and Outward as we've started this initiative for the year of 2018, walking through some of the the churches in Revelation. I I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is the fifth church of seven uh, that we've come to, and the reality that we're seeing is we must have a sincere love for the Lord if we're going to truly direct our hearts to Him. Our hearts need to be in the right place, directed to Him. And if we're really going to reach outward, then we need to have that sincere love for the Lord. So these churches keep bringing us back to our love for Christ. They keep bringing us back to the sincerity for which we would pursue him and pursue holiness, to deal with sin in our midst, to to deal with false teaching that creeps in, with persecution, to make sure that the things we do, that we do them for the glory of God and not our own. This morning, we will be in Revelations chapter 3. As you turn there, I was reminded this week in preparation of a story that I heard a couple years ago, July 2015, a young man by the name of James McElvar, he was a member of the Scottish boy band Rewind, so that gets a chuckle, just the fact that he's a part of a boy band, right? He's a member of the boy band Rewind, and they go to board a plane to go to a concert, as he boards the plane, he finds out that he can only carry on one bag. And so he just has to have all of his clothes. And so he runs and puts all of his clothes on. And so he goes and he sits down and the plane takes off. And within minutes, this guy just starts feeling very, very ill. He begins to violently vomit. And ultimately, he passes out in the airplane. And so at first, they don't know what's wrong. I mean, he's just a guy sitting there. They don't know if he's sick, what's happened, what's going on with him. They go and they get him off and come to find out he had layered up with 12 layers of clothes. 12 layers of clothes in July, right? And so this guy had put on uh, multiple t-shirts, multiple sweaters, three pairs of jeans, uh, multiple pairs of track pants, and then shorts over those track pants, and two hats. There's a picture, you can find a picture of him. He is quite humorous looking, but... You know, honestly, for a boy band, you just never know what they're going to look like, so nobody thought anything otherwise, right? He looked great on the outside, but he was absolutely roasting. He was cooking from the inside. Unfortunately, there are churches today that are in much the same position. They look fine on the outside, but on the inside is a different story. And that's where we find the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. That they looked great on the outside, but the inside was problematic. Sardis is a city we're kind of continuing to travel. And if you have a map in your head, I don't know how, how good your internal map is. Mine's not good. I ran some trails yesterday in the dark, and the guys wanted me to lead. And I said, you better lead because I have no idea where we are right now. If your internal map is better than mine, then this may make sense to you. You're traveling now about 35 miles southeast of where we were last week in Thyatira, and you come to a town called Sardis. When you come into Sardis, you'll notice just immediately that Sardis is built on a big hill, and many people in that day thought it was impenetrable, that opposing armies could not penetrate this town because not only was it on a steep hill, but one side of it was this very, very steep precipice that could not be scaled. And so there was a great confidence in the security of Sardis. Sardis was also a, a very profitable city. It had great and rich commerce. There was a legend that, that Midas had actually hidden his gold in one of the springs. And so one of the rivers that ran through 
had his gold in it, and so that brought prosperity to the city. So the city was very confident in itself. It was vibrant. It was alive. It was at one time in its heyday, it was the most influential, most powerful, and respected city in Asia. And so Sardis was a very much alive city. And so here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus sends a letter to the church that's sitting in this city that is very much alive, very much thriving. And here's what he says in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1. He says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So this is simply him, him reminding them that he is a watchful, sovereign God. He has a, a watchful, sovereign presence in their midst. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now you may notice a little difference here. We've noticed patterns in the letters to the churches, haven't we? That Christ begins by kind of a self-declaration of this is who I am. He begins with this is, this, I, I am the one um, in, in verse 1 there, the one that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So it's a, a declaration, this is who I am. Let me remind you of who is talking to you, right? He then speaks the letter to the church and he says, I know. We see that in every letter. He begins, I know. We talked about the, the assurance that brings in most of the church's situations that he knows the situation. He knows the predicament. He knows the context that they are in. He knows what's going on. We, we've seen the pattern that that in each one of these, it is written to the churches. So it is indeed written to the church specifically in Sardis. But it's also written for all of us to learn and hear. Right? And so we see all these patterns developing. Another thing that we see in most of the churches is that he commends them for something and then he rebukes them for something. Right? There's a commendation and then a rebuke. And then he calls them to do what? He calls them to repent. And gives them a message, what, is, what does each one end with? You remember the pattern? Each one ends with a, a message of hope to the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, the one who is victorious. And so he ends each one with that. Now what you'll see that is different, and there's a little difference in the middle of these patterns, and this is one that's different, the, word, the, the letter to Sardis. Where is the commendation that he gives Sardis? What is he saying you're doing this well? He doesn't. There's no commendation. He gets right to business. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So when Christ says, I know your works, it doesn't come with compassion of, I know what's going on. I know what you're going through. He says, listen, I know your works. Unless you become boastful, unless you become proud, 
I also know what's underneath those works. I know what's on the inside. I know that ultimately you look nice, but you're dead. And this, Church of Sardis, I have against you. See, the problem that he immediately deals with is this, is that Sardis' reputation does not equal Sardis' reality. Reputation does not equal reality in the church of Sardis. And this is very, very problematic. So you don't see any mention here of persecution, do you? There's nowhere it talks about the church being persecuted. There's nowhere that you see any talk about the church falling into false doctrine. They're not being tempted to to follow false doctrine. Why might this be? We, we don't know for certain. It, it doesn't lay it out in black and white. A lot of people would speculate that, that perhaps the reason for this is because the church has blended into the culture. The church just looks like everybody around them. So Satan really has, has, has no business. He, he's not going to waste his time going after the church of Sardis because the church of Sardis is dead. Why, why tempt it with persecution? Why try to smash it out? Why try to lure it away with false teaching? They're comfortable. They're complacent. Just leave it alone. It's dead. And so the church is not standing out. It's not being the salt and light, perhaps. One thing for certain is they're depending on their reputation, evidently. Perhaps their reputation is that that it's a, a vibrant church. Maybe that's based on the fact that maybe it had a great building, a wonderful, beautiful place that it met. Maybe not characteristic in that day but they had put one together. Perhaps the worship was, was dynamic and, and, and all the, everybody was just, oh, their, their emotions were stirred in, in, in worship and the, the talent, most talented musicians in the town had gathered to lead. Oh, it was a wonderful time of worship. They had incredible ministries. Their programs were, were some of the best. You could send your kids and the, the kids loved it. They loved it so much, they came out and said, Mom, I want to go back. Teenagers actually thought it was cool to hang out at the church in Sardis. Their parents were blown away, right? They, they couldn't believe it. They were excited. Perhaps the preacher, the teacher at the church was so dynamic that people were going, it's like, I don't care what he's preaching on today. I'll listen to him read his phone book. He, he was just a great, witty, dynamic guy. In fact, maybe the budget was always met. They never had a year. They came to the end of the budget year. They never had a year where they went, oh, we're just short of funds and we... Can't do it. No, the, the budget was always met. The church was great. It had a wonderful reputation. Wonderful reputation. But yet, it was dead. See, all these characteristics that we just talked about, they may be present in a biblical, healthy, vibrant church. But they are not biblical requirements of a healthy, vibrant church. Just because those things are there doesn't mean it is a church that is alive. See, when you start peeling the layers back in Sardis and you kind of look on the inside, maybe by asking some questions, maybe we ask questions like this. Does the church have a passion for God's glory? Is the church devoted to worship and fellowship and prayer? Does the church teach sound doctrine? Do the members have a genuine love for one another? Do they enjoy being around each other? Do they have a love for one another that covers a multitude of sins? Do they tirelessly seek to advance the gospel? Are they tirelessly going out into the city of Sardis 
to advance the gospel? Are they passionate about living holy lives? Are, are, they, are they living in such a way that they truly are the salt, the light that Jesus said? Are they living holy because their God is holy? These are questions that we ask of a church, whether it's in Sardis, whether it's Grace Baptist, or any church we know, that are questions that will peel back the layers and help us see what's going on. We don't ask questions about the budget, about the programs, about the building. Those are fine and well. Those same questions can be asked about a corporation. We're not a corporation. We ask questions to gauge health based on biblical parameters and biblical specifications of what is a healthy church. That's what we look at. That's what we examine. But when Christ examines the church in Sardis, he sees beyond that exterior. He sees what's on the inside. And this is typical of God, right? We know this. God does the same thing with us as individuals. You, you look great. I mean, this is a good-looking bunch here this morning. You guys are dressed great. I mean, you're beautiful. You got your hair fixed, some of you. Some of you can't do that, right? I can't really do it. I just cut my own hair and leave it at that. But, man, we're a pretty good-looking bunch. We look awfully religious. I mean, you're all sitting here listening to a guy talk about the Bible. But God goes deeper than what we look like here. God examines our heart. I mean, think about just for a moment. Let's, let's walk through some passages where we think about and we see God looking at the heart. We start all the way back in Deuteronomy 6 where we read the Shema, the statement of faith and, and, and monotheism that the Jews made. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. It's God's people are what? To, to love him wholeheartedly, right? The distinguishing mark is that they love God. We go, we move forward and see in 1 Samuel 16 where the Lord says to Samuel, he's looking for the king, Right? Saul has failed. And he says, do not look on his appearance and on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We move on to Isaiah 29. God says to his people, because his people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So the error of their people was not what they said, but that what they said did not agree with what they believed. That their heart was not there. Their heart was far from the Lord. In Matthew 6, Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus warned of the emptiness of following him only for the benefit of others seeing. We move forward. And Jesus says to him in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, when the lawyer comes and tries to trick him and ask him, what's the greatest commandment? What should we do? If we have to do just one thing, what would it be? And Jesus says, listen, the greatest commandment is less about what you do and more about who you love. He says that the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We move down into Hebrews chapter 4, and it's, we find out that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We find out there that, that God's word is not some, some instrument of behavior modification, but it's an instrument of surgery and heart transformation. God deals with the heart. 
We move all the way up into the churches. We come to Revelation chapter 2. We study where Pastor Bill started us out in Ephesians, or the church at Ephesus. And we find out the problem in the church of Ephesus wasn't that they didn't do enough, but is that they did it with no heart for the Lord. They had lost their first love. And we progress to Sardis. And Jesus looks at him and says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're dead. God deals with our heart. He deals with our heart. We cannot be satisfied with the appearance of godliness, void of a love for Christ. We can't be satisfied with that. So I would ask you this morning, as individuals, as a church, are you, are we satisfied with looking religious yet having no love for Christ in our hearts. If that's the case, then that's the good old $5 word hypocrisy, isn't it? The, the word that Christ spoke boldly against in Matthew 23, where Pastor Scott read earlier. The, the root of the problem for the Pharisees that we heard earlier was that, that they, they preach, but they do not practice. They preach, but they do not practice. There, there is no heart behind it. It's just religious action. They're living to look good. If you, you don't have to turn there, but listen to Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28. He gets right to the issue with the Pharisees, who, mind you, you know this, many of you know this, Pharisees and scribes were the religious leaders. And Jesus looks at them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, in that day, the, the tombs were situated along the countryside, and over the course of the year, they would blend in with other things around. And so as people would come to ceremonies, perhaps Passover, as they would make their way to Passover, it would be easy for them to stumble upon one which would bring about ceremonial uncleanness, which would be problematic for them going to the Passover feast. And so in an effort to prevent this, about a month before, they would come, they would whitewash the tombs so you could see them. And so then you would walk along and you would see, there's a tomb, there's a tomb, and you could avoid it, you knew. The problem with this is no matter how white the tombs were, it doesn't change what's on the inside. No matter how great I look on the outside, if my heart is not devoted to the Lord, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't matter how religious this group looks if we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It doesn't matter how nice this church looks among the community if there's no passion for the Lord, for His glory, if there's no longing for fellowship, if there's no longing for missions, no longing to advance the gospel. No devotion to prayer. No love for one another. That would be absolutely problematic. That we would be standing here as hypocrites. That we would be the whitewashed tombs that Christ is talking about in Matthew. I think there's a word of clarification that needs to be here. I think anytime we throw out hypocrisy, because I know sitting in here, I've, I've had a conversation with a few people. I know there's some people who say, well, I, you know, I might come to Christ by just the hypocrites. I, I just can't stand the hypocrites in the church. 
And I, and I know if you go out and you advance the gospel, you're seeking to engage in people or engage people in gospel conversations, that comes up often. Well, I, I just, you know, I might go to church, but I've just seen, met too many hypocrites. And so flippantly, sometimes we just throw out, oh, yeah, that's all right, I'm one of them. The church is full of hypocrites, and I'm one, come on. I don't, I don't land there. I don't land there. And here's the clarification. Is it imperfection, sinfulness is not hypocrisy. There's a difference, there's a difference between me saying I am a sinner saved by grace in need of God's forgiveness, in need of his grace and his work in my life. As opposed to me saying, hey, I'm perfect. I don't sin. Acting and living as such and then it being revealed that I am an absolute sinner. See, if you look up hypocrisy, the definition is this, is one who feigns to be what he is not, one who has the form of godliness without the power or who assumes an appearance of piety and virtue when he is destitute of true religion. Just because you sin and make mistakes does not make, just because you sin and make mistakes does not make you a hypocrite. It makes you a follower of Christ who is entrenched in a battle with sin. We're not called to feign that we're something that we're not. We're not called to pretend that we're perfect. We're called to express and be very clear that we're not. And that we trust Christ and his forgiveness and his work and presence in our lives. See, Christ confronts the Pharisees because they were pretending to be perfect. Their heart was a different matter. Now, I'm not saying to go out and just go, hey, I'm a sinner, woo! You know, I'm sinning, look at me sinning. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we need to strive to be who God's called us to be. And that does involve a battle with sin. That does involve stumbling. That does involve confessing our sins to the Lord and trusting his forgiveness. And sometimes and many times it involves confessing our sins to someone else. Simply to say, you know what? I realize that I sinned before you and I need God's forgiveness. And I just wanted to confess that to you and ask your forgiveness as well. Because I know I hurt you. We're not pretending that we're something we're not. We're seeking to live godly lives. Seeking to live godly lives. Second Timothy 3, Paul says, and it, he's condemning and, and listing out some, some vices and sins in the lives of people in the end times. And he says that some have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. That's the problem. That we would put on this face that we're godly, but we really don't live for the Lord. We really don't trust his power. The problem is that external reputation, void of internal reality, is never acceptable to God. And we have to realize that. We have to realize and be vigilant to not grow satisfied with our reputation at the expense of a heart devoted to the Lord. So when we think about upward, we're not thinking about upward in appearance. We're not saying, hey, we want to lift ourselves up and puff up our chest and say, hey, look at us. We're very religious, and we do lots of good things in our community. 
Now, when we say upward, we say let's lift our hearts and our minds to the Lord. Let's love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Let's love him with all that we are. That's what we think. That's what we say when we're upward. So the question is this. How does the church find itself where Sardis found itself? We've talked about before that it's very doubtful that Sardis started and said, hey, you know what? Let's live our lives in such a way that down the road, a few years, Jesus would look at us and go, hey, you have a great reputation to be alive, but you're actually dead. Nobody in the church thought that, right? That's not our desire either. So how do we prevent, as Grace Baptist Church, how do we prevent going there? What do we do? What happens? Here's some ways, I think, that a church goes from being alive and vibrant to a place where it looks alive, but it's actually dead. I think first, if there's an unwillingness to examine itself against the New Testament picture of a church. If a church is unwilling to examine itself against what God would say, this is what a church looks like. But instead, we just say, hey, we're keeping up with the Joneses. As long as we look like that church across town, or maybe even just a little better than them, we're okay. As long as if they're doing that and it works, then we'll do it too, then we're all right. No, that's, that's not our measure. Our measure is no other church. Our measure is the Word of God and what He sets forth as a biblical church. Here's a second way I think we can find ourselves in that position is if we have an unwillingness to stand for the truth against the tides of culture. If we just see culture pressing in, and we don't have a willingness to stand firm, and we just start coasting with it, because that's what's popular, or that's what the majority said, or even the perceived majority says, then we will coast into a spot where we may look alive, but we're dead. Here's another one is that if we're unwilling to repent of and deal with sin in our midst. There's sin that I have to repent of. There's sin that you need to repent of. There's sin as a church body we have to deal with. We've seen that in the last two churches. If we fail to do that, if we fail to deal with the sin in our midst, then we're going to believe. All right, is that for, it's time for lunch or, okay, we're good, okay. If we have an unwillingness to submit to Christ, if we have an unwillingness to submit to the word of God, then we will find ourselves in that spot. And we say, well, no, I don't, I don't want to do that, I don't like that, that may make me uncomfortable. We've never done it that way before. Then we find ourselves in that place. Is in that place traditions of the past become gods of the present. And if that happens, then we are in danger of looking nice on the outside, but being unhealthy within. And then finally, I would say, if we have an unwillingness to find greater meaning in God's opinion than in man's opinion, we're in trouble. If we have a greater appreciation of what man would say about us, how he would look upon us, as opposed to saying, God, what do you say about us? God, how do you see us? God, search us and know us, examine us. Then we're in trouble. 
As we move through the passage, though, and we look at this and, and we see God coming to Sardis and addressing them, in his mercy, this is not all he does. In his mercy, he tum- comes to verse 2 and 3. Look what he says. Jesus says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. We've covered that. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So in his mercy, what does he do? He calls them to repentance. He gives them five commands, five imperatives here. The first two are kind of grouped, and then the second three are grouped. So first he says, wake up, be vigilant, show yourself watchful. Now this is really relevant. Remember we talked about the city of Sardis? You remember what we said about it? It was a kind of a military stronghold. They were confident. It was vibrant. It was impregnable, right? Nobody's going nobody's to penetrate it and defeat it. But guess what? That bit them. Because... Cyrus, in the 6th century B.C., says anyone who can scale that unscalable wall will be the man. And guess what? There were some guys that said, I'm the man. And they did it. They climbed the wall, and when they get to the top of this, um, this um, precipice, they get over it, and there's no one in Sardis even watching it. Because they said, oh, nobody can do that. We're going to guard the front gate. And so the armies of Cyrus go in, they open the door, in comes his army, and the city is taken. So, you think they learn from that? No, they don't. 300 years later, the army of Antiochus the Great does the same thing. Same exact thing. They can't get in the city, they can't defeat it. The city's confident, they're puffing their chest out. Nobody can beat us, nobody can penetrate our walls. And so Antiochus sends some of his guards, some of his soldiers, and they climb the precipice, go over the wall, into the city, open the gates, and here comes the opposing army. After that, Sardis and its influence fell, and Pergamum became the most influential city in the area. There was a saying at that time, referencing, don't be like Sardis. Don't be like Sardis. And it would bring to mind, don't get so confident that you fail to see where you're weak. And so Jesus writes and he says, listen, you live in a city that thought it was alive and safe and all was well, and it was conquered twice. And now you're in a church and you think things are great. You think things are fine. You think everything's smooth. The building's nice. The budget's great. The staff's great. The teaching, all these things are going good. It's dynamic. Man, worship, woo, makes us emotional. We leave almost crying. You think you're great. And he says, be vigilant, be watchful, wake up. Wake up, because in the back door comes false teaching. In the back door comes complacency and apathy. And you're dying on the inside. Wake up. Wake up. And then he says, strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. Evidently, there's a remnant in Sardis. There's a small group, and he he says there's a remnant there. There's there's a few that remain. Be strengthened. Build them up. Be strengthened. Grow strong. It could refer to that kind of smoldering ember of spiritual life within. And no doubt that there may be some sitting here this morning that are there. That you look religious sitting here this morning. You're here every Sunday. You may be here every Wednesday. You may even make the prayer times on Sunday nights. And everything looks great on the outside, but you're dying within. 
And, and Jesus looks and says, wake up, strengthen what remains. There's a smoldering flame. <sighs> Blow it. <sighs> Fan it. Strengthen it. Increase your, your zeal and your passion and your love for the Lord. Strengthen what remains. Then he goes on to, to tell them three more commands that we heard in Ephesus as well. Remember what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember what you've seen and heard. Remember the gospel. Remember what Christ did on that mercy tree. Remember that he is a great and a mighty God. Why do we sing that? Why do we sing those psalms? Because Jeff likes the way they sound? No. Because Jeff wants you to see and we want you to see that God is a great God. And we want his name to be glorified. We want to remember who he is. We want to exalt his name. We want to remember the mercy tree. We want to remember the work he did on the cross, that he died for our sins. And we want to come back to what it really means to follow him. We want to remember the core truths of Christ. And that following him deals with our heart not just for looking religious. And Jesus looks at the church and he says, wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember those things. Remember what Christ has done in your life. Keep it. Keep those things. Hold fast to those things. And repent. Repent. A call of mercy, a great sign and a glimpse of God's mercy is that constant call to repent, 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 repent. But he says, if you do not, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. He's not talking about the final judgment here. He's saying, church at Sardis, if you do not wake up, I will come and I will discipline you. Why? Because in Hebrews, we learn that he disciplines those whom he loves. Listen, individual at Grace Baptist Church, Grace Baptist Church as a whole, if we find ourselves here or if we find ourselves in any sin, the word from our Lord is the same. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you have been taught. Obey it and repent. And if you do not, I discipline those whom I love. And I will come in judgment. Verse 4. Verse 4. We don't end on the ominous note. We end with a call to repentance, knowing that God will discipline those whom he loves. And then in verse 4, he gives us that verse of hope. Yet, you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. White, purity, victory. And then verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Never. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Do you remember that? Matthew 10, 32. What a wonderful promise from our Lord. If you're not ashamed of me before men, I'm not ashamed of you before my Father, but will confess you before my Father and the angels. He, he comes to me and he says, listen, 
Here's what you need to know. In Sardis and in Somerset, not every Christian is a hypocrite. So if you're that one that says, well, I just can't trust Christ because of the hypocrites, that's a terrible excuse. That's a terrible excuse. For one, not every Christian is a hypocrite. And for two, Christians didn't die for you anyway. Christ died for you. Not every church around in Somerset, not every church in the States is dead on the inside. Not every believer you see is dead on the inside. Not all Christians are whitewashed tombs. So unbeliever, you need to know that. You need to know that. Are we perfect? No. We're not perfect. Do we sin? Yes, we sin. But most of us in here aren't claiming to be perfect. We're claiming to worship and follow a perfect Savior. That's why we worship Him and you don't worship us. So unbeliever, I would call you to trust Him. To trust Him. Why? Because if you trust Him, the same words that He spoke to the church in Sardis would be true. That you would never have your name taken out of the book of life. Never. It's never blotted out. Believer, you have that confidence and that security. If you're struggling, and that, that word to Sardis is a word for you of saying, wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, obey and repent. If that's the word that you're sitting here going, man, God, I've got to, I've got to do that. God, you know I'm a whitewashed tomb. You know that I look religious on the outside, but I'm dead on the inside. The hope is that he says the one who conquers, the one who perseveres will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That is great hope for us today. That's great hope. The cause is not lost on you. The cause is not lost. And I would say, I can speak for myself, and I think I can speak for all the other pastors. There's been times in our lives where our faith was troubled and small, And went through hard times. And he held us fast. And he brought us up out of the muck and the mire. But it came through repentance. And it came through directing our hearts to the Lord. It didn't come through being more religious and looking nice on the outside. So I would call you, believer, this morning. To trust in Christ. For his healing and renewal. I would call us as a church to be a church that sincerely loves the Lord. That we would be more concerned with who we are than what we look like. That we would understand that the measure of a church is not how it appears before man, but how it appears before God. And likewise, the measure of a man is not how you appear before man how you appear before God. Let's pray. Father, we...